1 Samuel chapter 20 this morning, as we continue through. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the row in front of you you can use this morning. We're going to be reading the entire chapter. Now, I understand that in, in, in the Old Testament narratives, they can be very long, and so we, and we've been standing for a lot of those, but this is an extra long one, so I'm going to have you remain seated this morning. Um, I debated just maybe preaching on a, a, a middle portion of this and not reading the entirety, but I think reading the entirety of the chapter is important because it gives us context. It gives us um, the entire story as it was meant to be heard and as it was meant to be told. So uh, again, where we are in the, in the Bible is um, the kings, the beginning of the monarchy. And we have Saul and we have David. We have Saul not liking David. We have Saul trying to kill David, and David's on the run. And, um, and, then, and Jonathan is his only lifeline, really, at this point. And so we're going to zero in on verses 12 through 17. I can't, can't cover every verse, every scene in this chapter, but we're going to focus in on David and Jonathan's conversation, verses 12 through 17. So you can remain seated, but this is the word of the Lord. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah, and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It's not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But Truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. And David said to Jonathan, behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king, but let me go that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it'll be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? And then David said to Jonathan, who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? And, but should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, If I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. And if I'm still alive, show show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever, when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. 
And then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the boy saying, Go, find the arrows. If I say to the boy, Look, the arrows are on this side of you, take them. Then you are to come, for as the Lord lives, it is safe for you and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, look, the arrows are beyond you, then go for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field. And when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. And Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, Something has happened to him, for he is not clean. Surely he is not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, Well, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to the Bethlehem. And he said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now... If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. And then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month. For he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and him, a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, and the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times, and they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. And then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, may the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, O Rock, and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is this passage about? There's a lot going on, but what I want to focus on is the covenant between David and Jonathan that they strike again together. Remember, this is not the the first covenant they've made. If you go back to chapter 18, verse 3, you see that Jonathan made a covenant with David 
It says because he loved him as his own soul. And if you think about it, this was more than just a friendship covenant. This was a political covenant. Remember, these two men are from different households, different uh, kings, essentially, different political parties. And they are making a covenant together that they are one together. And what's binding them, really? It's their love of the Lord. It's their, uh, it's their um, allegiance to the king. And so it's about covenant. Covenant. What is a covenant? We don't really use that word a whole lot in, in our common modern day language outside of the church. Sometimes in legal language, they, they use the word covenant. But really, what does it mean? What is a covenant? Well, a simple definition is that a covenant is an oath-bound promise. An oath-bound promise between two or more people. We see the idea of covenant all throughout the Bible as it's the primary way that God relates to his creation. The very first covenant we read about, we don't see the word covenant, but it's a certain, it certainly is a covenant between Adam and Eve and God. And this was a covenantal arrangement because God told them that they needed to do something to live. They needed to obey his word to live. And if they disobeyed his word, they would die. And as you know, they disobeyed. They disobeyed his word. And so a new covenant would have to be formed, established. And we get a glimpse of that covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15 with God's promise of a coming descendant of Eve that would crush the head of the serpent, the descendant of the serpent. And this covenant of grace, as we've called it, becomes clearer and clearer with the promise especially God makes to Abraham that he will make of him a great nation and that a king would come from his line and all the families of the world would be blessed and we see that this covenant was gracious and that because Abraham believed in what God counted it to him as righteousness. Not by working or doing anything, but by simply believing God and his word. And this Abrahamic covenant becomes the bedrock foundation of the new covenant that Jesus establishes. When he comes on the scene in his life and his death, he fulfills what's promised to Abraham. It's a covenant of God's loyalty to his people, whom he'll never, ever forsake. Because, friends, when God makes a promise, he keeps his promises. And so, when we think of covenant, I want you to think of this phrase. It's God saying, you can count on me. You can count on me. I didn't know this before being a dad, but when you become a parent, you quickly become accustomed to hearing and watching uh, children's TV shows and children's music, right, all the time. Uh, children's books and Bibles and music and PBS shows. And uh, there's this one particular PBS show called Peg and Cat. And I don't know if you've heard of it, but I've actually never seen an episode of it. But one of the songs has always stood out to me. And it's actually the music on the show is great. But Peg is a girl and... Uh, she has a cat, and it's this overweight cat, funny cat. And they have this great song called You Can Count On Me. And it's one of those songs, children's songs, that really creates a, it communicates a deep truth. And as I've heard that song, I'm like, yeah, that, is, that's, that strikes at the core of really what a covenant is, that you can count on someone. And so here, here's the song goes. It's a little bit silly, so bear with me. If you're visiting the zoo and an elephant sits on you, don't just stay smushed under his tush. Give me a call and I'll give him a push. You can count on me. 
You can count on me. Being trapped under some bum is quite a conundrum, but I will get you free. Yes, you can count on me. If I'm going for a sail and I'm swallowed by a whale, no need to be frazzled or flummoxed. Leave it to me. I'll get you out of his tummy. You can count on me. You can count on me. If you just request it, I'll get you uningested and will sell merrily. Yes, you can count on me. It's silly, isn't it? But it's beautiful. It's silly, but beautiful. We can count. To have someone in your life that you can really count on to get you out of a tough spot, that's a blessing. That's a blessing. So this morning, as we think about this, David and Jonathan are relying upon each other. And so the truth is this, that in confusion, in trouble, in our lives, we need to take, your, take yourself to the one who's made a covenant with you. And so David and Jonathan's covenant is a picture of God's covenant love toward us. When we're in trouble, when we're in confusion, go to the one who's made a covenant with you, who you can count on. The first idea that we're going to look, through, look at covenant with is that covenant forces faithfulness. Covenant forces faithfulness. If you see the first 11 verses of chapter 20, you see this discussion between Jonathan and David. David comes to, to Jonathan and tells him, it really seems like Saul's trying to kill me. And Jonathan, he's very optimistic about his father, isn't he? He says, far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does neither great nor small without telling me. Some people have argued that this story seems a little bit uh, not chronological, not, not told chronologically, because should it surely Jonathan know at this point that Saul wants to kill David? Back in chapter 19, he rallied his people together and said, let's kill David. So we can either read it not chronological, or I think what's probably better is that Jonathan's just trying to be hopeful. He's trying to be optimistic about his father, I think. Um, that he's, he's got maybe a, a tinge of good left in him. So they're discussing this, and, um, and they come up with a plan. They come up with a plan. David is going to go hide in this field, and Jonathan is going to shoot an arrow. If it goes beyond him, he needs to run away. That Saul is set on killing him. If he shoots the arrow shorter and tells the boy to come and get it, isn't it before you, then David, that's the clue. That's the, that's the, uh, the code word. David then doesn't need to run away. But in the midst of this, they make a covenant. They make a a second covenant. Look at verse 12 through 17. Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded up my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if he is well disposed, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also, if I do not disclose it to you. But look at what this covenant entails in verse 14 and 15. If I'm still alive, this is Jonathan talking. If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. What Jonathan is saying is, do not cut off my descendants. Do not cut off my house. Do not kill all of my house, even though there is going to be war between our two houses. Save me and save my house. And so we see that this second covenant involves firm promises and solemn commitments. They, they declare the name of the Lord. Lord be witness. Uh, they, they talk about the God, God's steadfast love. He says, show me the steadfast love of the Lord. 
that I may not die. There's that word again. It comes again and again throughout the scriptures. Steadfast love. Hesed love. This is the covenant love of God that they are now applying to themselves. In Psalm 51, it's, uh, it's, it can be translated God's unfailing love. Dale Ralph Davis explains Hesed as this. Hesed is not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. Hence, the covenant gives him reason to look for and depend upon devoted love. There's a great um, children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And in it, this phrase, this Hesed love phrase, is, is all throughout the book. Sally Lloyd-Jones defines this love as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Isn't that a great definition of God's Hesed love? It's a committed, it's an unfailing love. It's a love you can count on. And so covenant forces faithfulness. We also see that you don't enter into a covenant with someone lightly. Look at verse 8. Therefore, this is uh, David speaking. Therefore, deal kindly with your servant, for you've brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But what does he say here? But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father. Why does David say, kill me yourself? Remember, when you've made a covenant with someone, the penalty of breaking that promise is death. Taking death upon yourself. And that's why he says, if there's guilt in me, I've broken the covenant between you and me, Jonathan. So kill me. You'd be right to kill me yourself. I would take upon the covenant of curses, the covenant curses. So we see they've, they've made these solemn commitments. They don't enter into this covenant lightly. But we also see that their faithfulness was unlikely. Del Ralph Davis says, Jonathan's covenant commitment to David flies smack in the face of all political sense. Remember, they're from two different political houses. Jonathan is the crown prince. It would be well within his um, ability and motivation to kill David. If he killed David, he would be next in line in the throne. But instead, he's making a covenant with David. You see, in the Old Testament, it was very common to wipe out the other household, to wipe, make, to clean the slate. Del Ralph Davis says again, when a new regime or dynasty came to power, this is in the ancient Near East, but also in Israel, the name of the game was purge. It was conventional political policy, solidification by liquidation, right? You, get, you wipe them out. Isn't that kind of similar to our modern politics in some ways? I mean, we don't, thankfully, people aren't being wiped out physically uh, in our government when a new administration comes. But what's typical, right, when a new president comes to the White House, everybody who was in that administration gets fired, right? They get cleaned, the clean house. And so it's very similar to the way we think of things. But what was the difference for Jonathan? For Jonathan, covenant conquered culture. The culture said one thing, but the covenant he made with David and before God conquered what the culture expected of him. Politics of heaven trumped politics of earth for Jonathan. And you know, you see this kind of uncommon steadfast love, this kind of love that stands out 
It's unlikely. You see this in often a lot of Christian marriages, where especially where one spouse's health has declined significantly and the other spouse takes care of them. And into old age, even when there's nothing that can be given back to that spouse. We talked about it weeks ago, but there's a transactional kind of love that exists, right? This, 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 this idea that I will do something for you if you then do it to me. And I'm not going to help you unless you do something for me. There is no transactional love like that, that when someone is dying and you're taking care of them. There's nothing that's going to be given back in return. It's completely sacrificial. And it's so beautiful to see that. I've seen it on display. It's purely sacrificial love. It's uncommon in our culture, but it's undeniably attractive and beautiful to see that. When you have a spouse who is uh, getting dementia or Alzheimer's or dealing with cancer or dealing with any kind of setback, you see this love that pursues. It's not looking for anything in return. And that's the kind of love, the reason you can do that because that's the kind of love you get, we get from God. Faithfulness in our covenants, in our human-to-human covenants, comes from God's faithfulness to his covenant. The, fa- the faithfulness we can have in a marriage to, to really to be faithful your entire life, that does not come naturally. You must receive it from the God who's faithful to you if you're going to remain faithful in your covenants. That's the first idea. Covenant forces Faithfulness. The second idea is that covenant comes at a cost. Covenant comes at a cost. They come to this, um, they make this covenant with each other. Well, what's interesting, though, is we, we get another lie, don't we? They, they make up this story that David is, has this fe- feast to go to in Bethlehem. And you may be asking, why all the lying? <laughs> we had a lie with McCall in the last chapter. We had a lie here with David and Jonathan. Why? We need to remember, we're reading the Old Testament, we're reading real story, real history about imperfect people. Like you and I, imperfectly. We're imperfect people. And they're also under a lot of stress. So we're not giving them a break here. This is also not something we're to imitate. But you've got to remember, they are under tons of stress. And they're imperfect sinners. But they do come up with this plan to say, you know what, Saul, David is not here. He had to go back to Bethlehem. But really, he's not there. He's hiding in a field. But we see that covenant comes at a cost to Jonathan especially. If you go to verses 24 through 34, we get this scene where Jonathan goes to the banquet, where David is expected to be, but he's not there because he believes he would get killed. And it doesn't go so well for Jonathan. He tells him, he tells Saul that he had to go to Bethlehem, verse 28. And then verse 29, he continues and explains, our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, And so David said, my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, Father, he hasn't come to the the table. And what is Saul's response in verse 30? You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. There's a modern day that that is said typically. You probably know what I'm talking about. And the ESV is being kind. I'll say that in verse 30. He's angry. He's upset, and he is going to go after Jonathan. He knew that he was going to come after him, and he has to go on the run as well. 
And so it puts Jonathan in a difficult place. He has, to, he has a cost. He has, he has made this covenant to David, but he is going to pay for it. It reminded me of Psalm 15, where God says, O Lord, or the psalmist says, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? And who shall dwell in your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And in verse 4 it says, He who swears to his own hurt and does not change. He makes a commitment and he's going to pay the cost for it, but he does not change his commitment. He swears to his own hurt and he does not change. And so there's a price to be paid, brothers and sisters, for living in God's kingdom. Look at the way Saul puts it in verse 30 and 31. Actually, look at verse 31. This is Saul's words to Jonathan. For as long as the son of Jesse, that's David, lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. You see what he said? Neither you, Jonathan, nor your kingdom will be established. And so it makes us ask, whose kingdom are we living for? Who is Jonathan living for? His kingdom? No, he put his own kingdom aside. He lived for God's kingdom. You know, I think if Jonathan had lived in the time of Jesus, he would have understood well Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Seek first my kingdom and all these things will be added to you as well. Jonathan would have also understood Matthew 10, where Jesus says that I came not to bring peace, but a sword. I came to set a man against his father. That there will be division when the gospel, when you are living for this higher kingdom, when you are living for God's kingdom, not everybody is going to get behind you. Some people are going to fight you when you're living for God's kingdom. We need to ask, whose kingdom are you living for? And are you prepared for that cost? You see, sometimes we think that the Christian life will be easy, don't we? That now that I'm a Christian, it's going to be a cakewalk. I'm going to be like walking through Windsor Castle Park for the rest of my life. Easy. And even us who are Christians and who have been Christians for quite a while, we get lulled into thinking that our lives are supposed to be easy and carefree and No danger, no toil, no snares. But, oh, wow, that's not the case. We forget the price to be paid for walking in the light, don't we? To be in covenant with God. It's not supposed to be easy. And if it is easy, maybe we should question whose kingdom we are living for. I'm reminded when I was in college, I was a part of an international Bible study where we would... It was geared toward all the international students at James Madison University, and there was one Egyptian girl who came to our meeting. She was not a Christian. She was Muslim. And the Lord saved her, and she saw Jesus um, clearly through the Scriptures, believed upon him, but she was Muslim. And so very quickly when her parents found out, she was disowned, completely disowned, her Egyptian parents. And I just remember her going through that and seeing someone actually pay a a cultural price, a family price for, for her choice to follow Christ. It made a big impact, impact on me. And I remember reading the scriptures with her in that psalm that says, you know, father and mother have abandoned me, but the Lord will take me in. That's what she, she clung to those days. 
We all will face that, that price to a certain degree. We need to be prepared for it, at the very least. But what will give you hope, what will give you encouragement is that we have a, a Savior who paid the ultimate covenant price to show you his love. In 1 John 4, the apostle writes, In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul writes, and I have it hanging on my wall in the office, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ paid the eternal price. The covenant curses fell upon Him in our place. So covenant comes at a cost, brothers and sisters. We can endure knowing Jesus paid that ultimate cost. The last truth of of what we learn about a covenant in this passage is that covenant produces peace. That we can have real peace in the midst of our covenant. Look at verse 42, and this is near the end of our chapter where David and Jonathan are going to depart. They embrace, they cry, they weep. And look at the word Jonathan says to David. Jonathan said to David, go in peace. Verse 42. Go in peace. Because we have sworn, both of us, in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord shall be between me and you, and my offspring and your offspring forever. How could Jonathan say go in peace when there was nothing peaceful about their situation? Brothers and sisters, we can know peace because we have assurance. Do you lack assurance in your own salvation? If you do, ask yourself what you're focusing on. Are you focusing on your works, your performance? Are you focusing on what God has already finished, what he has already done, what he promises to you in the gospel? Bill Ralph Davis says, Biblical peace is not often a general tranquility in life, but rather a rightness at the center in the midst of much turmoil. You can have biblical peace in the midst of turmoil. It doesn't mean your life's going to be tranquil. David's life was not about to be tranquil after this scene, but he had peace. The center of his life had a rightness with God. And that is true for every believer in Christ. Flip over to Romans, chapter 5 of Romans. I read this for our assurance of pardon, but I want to highlight it. Romans chapter 5. See where our peace comes from as a believer. Beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been justified, brothers and sisters. That's why we have peace with God. Through him, we've also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But what do we also have in verse 3? Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We have peace with God, Paul's saying, but we also rejoice in the same time in our sufferings. We're, we have a rightness with God in our soul. That gives us peace. 
in the midst of the chaos. Why will God accept you? When you, get, when you, you, know, when you die, when you enter into his presence, why will God accept you? Because you're in Christ. You should never answer that question. If, if, if this is how it goes, right, when we die and we we're in front of him, you should never answer that question with, with, the, with the first person. Well, I. Well, I've done this or that. When he says, why should I accept you? It should always be the third person, he. What he has done, what Christ has done, is why I'm accepted. What he has finished on the cross, not what I have done. Dale Ralph Davis continues and says, the Christian then does not have peace because things are peaceful. We don't have peace because things are peaceful. He has peace because a greater one than Jonathan has pledged his friendship to him. And if you doubt that, you haven't been listening at the Lord's table, Lord's Supper. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood, Jesus said. It's the covenant bond of that unforsaking friend that speaks peace in our disappointments, in our dangers, in our disasters. We have peace with God. And what's amazing is that this peace, this covenant between David and Jonathan is going to extend to their households. It's going to extend to their offspring. And it's going to extend in 2 Samuel chapter 9 to, to Jonathan's son. And he's got a name that is a nightmare for preachers. Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth. Say that 10 times fast. Now Mephibosheth, when he was young, when he was little, and they were fleeing because of war, and, and David's house and David's armies was coming in, he was dropped by his caretaker, and he, and he became lame in his two feet, and he couldn't walk the whole days of his life. He was completely dependent upon others his whole life. So not only was he a part of the administration, the reigning of a king that is now being wiped out, he's totally dependent physically. He has nothing to offer. But what does David remember? Jonathan has died at this point. What does he remember? His covenant with Jonathan's whole house. And so Mephibosheth is saved. And so when I'm, I'm reading from 2 Samuel chapter 9, David speaks to Mephibosheth and says, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of who? Your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, And you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, this is Mephibosheth, what is your servant that that you should show this regard for a dead dog such as I? He calls himself a dead dog. But here's his status before David because of the covenant. Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. And so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, and he ate always at the king's table. The blessing of the covenant was upon him. And look how the last statement in verse 13 of Samuel chapter 9, it adds this. Now he was lame in both his feet. Why would it add that? It adds it because it wants to remind us that he was completely dependent. He needed complete dependence upon the covenant. It's you and me. We are Mephibosheth. We are completely dependent. We are completely dependent upon the covenant faithfulness of someone else because we cannot do anything ourselves. And that is where we get our peace. I want to conclude with this final story. 
It's about a boy who counted things throughout his house. The boy counted everything. Socks in his drawer, peas on his plate, cars on the highway. He loved numbers. He loved to count. And so one day he asked his father, Daddy, can God count? And his father said, yes, son, God can count. Well, what does God count? What does he count? Well, he counts the hairs on our heads. Every hair? The son asked. Yes, every hair, the father answered. And the son asked, well, what else does God count? Well, when we get sad or hurt or when we cry, God counts our tears. Every tear, the son asked. Yes, every tear, the father answered. Well, the son thought a minute. Well, and then he asked, is there anything God doesn't count? Yes, there's one thing. God doesn't count. And the son asked, well, what does he not count? The father took his son's hand and led him down the hall. And he pointed to the family's cross that hung on the wall. And the father said to his son, on the day Jesus died, God stopped counting our sins. He added them all up and he gave them to Jesus. And he will never count them again. Every sin, the son asked. Yes, every single one, the father answered. Isn't that amazing that God knows every hair on your head, every tear you've ever cried, but he refuses to know your sins. He refuses to know your sins because of the covenant, brothers and sisters. Because of God's covenant promise, we have peace. That's the kind of peace you won't find in the world, but it's the kind of peace we can bring to a peaceless world. And so this week, I want you to focus on God's covenant love toward you. I want you to do that. Ponder his covenant love, the unshakable, never stopping, never giving up love of God, where he says, you can count on me. And we're going to sing a song about that covenant love just in a second. And it's called a love that will not let me go. It's a strong love. It's a faithful love. Let's pray together. Father, we are undone by your great, strong love. We are so thankful. You do not hold our sins against us. You don't even count them. Father, lift us up this week. Show us yourself. Show us your unbreaking, unfathomable love as we look to Christ our Savior. In his name we pray.